the reason why I was reaching out to you is because many of our followers, one, did not know that it was election time for ASHA board, and two, we just wanted to get a sense of what is important to um, to the candidates and how you envision um, serving on the ASHA board. Well, I applaud you for that, actually. Um, I, you're from the Bay Area, and um, I would guess that the way that I am most familiar with that is my family actually is from um, a small place, Castroville, mm -hmm. up in um, uh, California, and also uh, as an accreditation person, so I go out and do the CAA accreditations mm -hmm. um, as one of the chairs, San Francisco State, so I did a lot of work there doing the accreditation, and I loved, um, I loved the program, and since we're being Recorded, that's all I will say. <laughs> yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> um, actually, that is my alma mater. I went to San Francisco State for my bachelor's and my master's. Okay, so Betty, you and I are, are very, um, we've worked well together. Um, mm -hmm. We're both from the multicultural constituency groups. Mm -hmm. and she served as the president of the Asian Pacific, and uh, I'm, I served as the president of the Hispanic Caucus. Oh, and wonderful. I tell you, yeah. Um, probably one of the most rewarding experiences. And that's why I was very excited uh, to meet many of you. And the fact that you say that you have uh, approximately 5,000, uh, that, that, that is just absolutely phenomenal. So let me just give you a little background. Please. So that you can understand the context under which uh, any responses that I give. So you can understand, because I think it's important that you know the person. Exactly. And so, and, and you can probably tell from the background, <laughs> uh, I grew up in New York City. So I am a native of New York. I have, uh, I did all my schooling there. Um, I attended uh, the university there, graduating from St. John's University and Columbia University. Um, I was a teacher, actually. So I always consider myself an educator first. I was very instrumental in implementing the first bilingual special education programs in the New York City school system. So I worked with a number of talented individuals in a time where working with English learners or bilingual is not the most popular thing. And then when you merged uh, working with bilingual children who had special needs, that was really a, a really different concept and came along with a lot of legislation. Mm -hmm. And um, then I graduated with my area uh, is really focused on deafness. So that is really my passion, working with persons with hearing loss. Mm -hmm. And I did my dissertation in that area. But it's very interesting. I had a very interesting route because I've always loved language. And so I started out at St. John's University, really in the speech language pathology as a minor. Mm -hmm. And then when I graduated, I basically said, okay, so I have my degree in deafness, but my passion was always speech language pathology. So I actually went back and, and completed that and then left New York City and moved to Florida for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. Did my clinical fellowship year there. And then I obtained a faculty position at the University of Central Florida. But I also always kept connected with um, the school system. So I served as a consultant for almost 25 years in one of the school districts that has a very large Puerto Rican population here in Orlando, Florida. And additionally, that I always 
wanted to keep my skills um, with um, adults. So I did work in skilled nursing facility. Um, so I would say that if you had to really know me, um, and, I, and I say this in my bio on, on the ASHA site, mm-hmm. I was a child that received speech language services. Mm-hmm. Very angry about it, by the way, because I really didn't understand why I was receiving services. But I had Bell's palsy as a very young child. And um, so received articulation therapy, but it wasn't until I was in my 20s that um, I had health insurance and then I had to have um, surgery and uh, then really had speech pathology um, services for a very different reason. I think I'm a first generation student, um, first in my family to Mm -hmm. go to college. So I think that brings a very different lens uh, when you are going to the university and there's a lot writing on you. Uh-huh. And last, um, I would say my clinical, um, my clinical experiences has really ranged because I worked in the schools. When I went to the university, they would not really allow me to do schools. So I did hospitals, um, various different hospital settings, worked with the Miku and the Piku uh, population. I worked with adults. Um, so I, I think, I know one of the questions that might be posed is what do you bring? I think that what might be different is I bring the perspective of, I was the client mm-hmm. and, um, I don't know how many people get to really understand that when you're a client, you, you bring a very different lens to a situation. Uh, the other thing is work working across the lifespan and working across settings. I think I have a really good understanding of what it's like to be a speech language pathologist in a variety of settings, sometimes not always having all the answers. Um, so that's, that. if you wanna go on to questions, but I just wanted to yes. introduce myself because I think it's important so you understand the context under which I answer questions. Yes. Perfect. Yes, I was going to ask you a little bit about yourself um, because I think that gives great context to um, your experience and um, your lived experience. Like you said, being a a client of a speech language pathologist and now sitting on the other side of the table, um, as well as being a professor. um, I think all of those experiences are really good for voters to know about. Um, So I do have some questions and then we do have um, some of our followers that have joined us to ask us questions as well. Um, But my first question to you um, has to do with COVID-19. We are living, you know, in a very uncertain, um, unprecedented time, as a lot of people have said, and this has drastically changed our profession. And I'm just wondering, how can you and your role, if elected, Um, and as a representative of ASHA, provide meaningful support to members as we navigate the unknowns of this pandemic? I have to tell you that is probably one of the best questions that um, I have heard because we are really under uh, a challenging environment. You know, I hear the word a lot, unprecedented. Mm -hmm. And I start to think to myself, well, you know, I'm not your age. And I've lived through a lot of unprecedented times, you know, 9-11 to me was unprecedented. But I think what I, what I really, what really keeps me up at night is have we really prepared our speech language pathologists to deal with some of those challenges that are, that are coming. So for example, 
Um, I have always said that most people don't understand the role of a speech language pathologist. You and I know, and probably your listeners also know, that if you told your family, I'm going to study to be a speech language pathologist, most of the time their answer was, what's that? Mm -hmm. What do they do? Or, oh, you're going to teach people how to, how to speak better, you know, the articulation piece. But they don't really understand our scope of practice. And I really believe that it is really critical at this time, number one, that we understand the needs of our community, that we understand how we need to remain current, we need to remain ethical in our role and responsibilities, and we need to really put out there, what is it that speech-language pathologists do? What is it that we bring to the table? What are the competencies? And so, when I was uh, thinking about the, the drastic changes to our profession, I would see that one of my roles would really be to understand the needs of our membership and how is it that each of them has to be prepared in whatever setting. So for example, um, in the school setting, we have had to train a whole host of people how to go online. And it's not just the technology piece, it's now how do you deal with families who don't have jobs? There are other kids in, in, you know, in the picture when you're having to do um, therapy. How do you engage a three-year-old? How do you, what materials do you use? What resources can you go to? And I can tell you that one of the things I have been very excited about as I go from, you know, I go into Facebook or is these support groups that have really helped each other. You know, one uh, diagnostician or one clinician says, help, I'm working with a child with autism. I don't know what to do. And I think that's really important. And so in my role, I think it is really um, incumbent upon, as a matter of fact, anybody in this role to understand what our needs are, how we can access resources, how we can prepare um, our clinicians to uh, rise up to the challenge. So I'll give you an example. I'm the professional development manager for 617, and that's one of the special interest groups for um, global, for international. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we are really seeing is this need for us to partner with um, SIG-18, which is a teletherapy. So how do we deal with this lack of knowledge in teletherapy? What are the um, workshops we need? What are the competencies we need? So um, not to get very, very um, specific, but I really think that we need to make sure that um, our profession doesn't get lost because I think most people know what um, physical therapists do mm -hmm. and what nurses do, but I don't want what the speech language pathologists and or audiologists are able to contribute to be lost, um, you know, in this COVID-19, um, you know, era. I also think um, understanding different service delivery models virtually. I, I think that that has been a real um, challenge and having to do that in, su in such a quick time you know, during this time, you don't have, okay, I'm going to go to a workshop and I think that we're going to learn something. No, 
private practice. You know, you have to be able to say, okay, how am I going to do this? What, you know, what resources, what professional development do I have to um, uh, go through? What policy and policies and, and procedures maybe ASHA has to really look at? So for example, in the university, one of the problems that we are having is how do we now provide um, clinical experiences? Students want to graduate. Right. And so you have hospitals, you have school nursing facilities that say, no, we can't accept you right now. Uh -huh. So, you know, we're, we're sort of looking towards ASHA to, to help us determine what, what, <laughs> what leeway will, they, will there be? And I have to tell you, that's a very tight rope because you want some leeway, but you also want to make sure that you're keeping those standards and competencies that we expect of someone who graduates from a speech language pathology program and or audiology program. So I would say, um, you know, the role um, of the VP would really be to support our speech language pathologists through professional development, policy review and revision so that we can ensure that they're going to work at the highest competency and they're going to be able to work um, across settings and populations and feel comfortable. And I also believe um, they need support systems. Mm -hmm. um, you can't do it by yourself. And sometimes when you are out there in the schools or you're out there as a private practice uh, you know, person, you sometimes feel very alone. And, mm -hmm. and I think it is really important that ASHA um, show support and that they're there with some of those critical responses that we need because sometimes we are navigating somehow sometimes in the dark and we need those position statements. We need those statements that say, okay, we're going to be able to do this to help us through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. One thing that um, you said that that kind of rang true for me is, um, you know, support. And that's actually why we started SLPs of Color. And um, that leads into my next question about um, the ASHA demographics. So in 2019, the demographics stated that only 8% of us members and affiliates were people of color, significantly lower than that of the census demographics of the US. And in your position, how will you support the recruitment and retainment of diverse clinicians and students? Christina, that's such a great question. Um, you know, that has really been my life's work. So, you know, bringing it to ASHA is really not anything that I haven't done in my 27 years in, in, in working as a speech language pathologist. You know, uh, I work closely with that multicultural office. Um, I write grants in that area to prepare speech language pathologists, whether it's to work with English language learners, whether it's to work with deaf and hard of hearing, which is another type of um, diversity uh, mm -hmm. when we look at language. And I think it is really important to always have a voice at the table mm -hmm. and that we broaden that, that definition of diversity we, we, we spend a lot of time on diversity, but we don't talk about inclusion and we don't talk about equity. Mm -hmm. and I Absolutely. think that what has happened is we've just, just having this diversity label to me has never been enough. 
-hmm. You know, we talk about the demographics of ASHA, and I think we should pay attention to um, that many of them, if you look at the demographics, are self-identified. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that could mean a lot of things. So Christina, you could tell me you're a bilingual speech language pathologist, and I can say to you, what is your language proficiency? Okay, it could be very different. I consider myself bilingual, but I also consider myself biliterate because I was raised to read, write, and speak it. Mm -hmm. Okay, right. but nowadays we really use that bilingual speech language pathologist or diversity. Um, it, it means much more than just having cultural competence. You have to be culturally responsive also. And uh, one thing that um, I have always thought about, you know, when I was trained in New York City, they have a an, um, certificate that says bilingual speech language pathologist, but you got tested in the language and you also took um, a test that allowed you to have that title. Uh -huh. And I think what has happened across um, the states is that there's a lot of variability in terms of what we consider diverse. And how, how is it that, and what does that mean? You know, so we want diversity, we, we work with the universities for recruitment, retention, but I have to tell you, to me, a person who is diverse, I think has a responsibility to, to work with clients and to consider what they bring into the table and see it as a strength and to understand the difference between a communication difference and a communication disorder. Mm -hmm. And sometimes what happens is that as um, speech language pathologists, a lot of those children or whatever uh, adults might be on our caseload. And by the way, um, I, I just need to say this because given that we have such small numbers uh, in ASHA, I have really spent a lot of time um, working with um, professionals that are monolingual because I don't want them to think that they don't have that responsibility to respond and to support our kids or our adults who come from homes where maybe English is not the primary language or they come from another cultural group. So I think it's, it's real important and I'll just say something as an aside. Um, as a bilingual speech language pathologist, I remember being in, um, in a situation where I would go in and work with bilingual children. I would do the assessments. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting outside and the um, um, administrator came in and she said, you know, Linda, we don't have a lot of work for you today. Um, we don't have a lot of uh, Spanish kids coming in. And I just looked at her and he said, this is my aha moment. And I said, well, you know, I could do the English speaking children because I am bilingual. I speak English, by the way. So, you know, it's, it's this little, um, uh, uh, we have a lot of education to do. It's the bottom line. And I think that the role of a VP is to always be at the table and to have a wide lens. We have a lot of different situations and we have a lot of work to do in, you know, incorporating diversity across the scope of practice. Mm -hmm. And I just think that the person at the table has to be the person there that has a true commitment, that uh, understands some of the challenges, not just in the profession, but in meeting the needs of our community. 
Great, thank you so much. Appreciate your response. Um, so we have about five or so minutes left and um, we have two of our followers here and um, if they had any questions, feel free to unmute yourselves. Um, if not, I can ask one more follow-up question. Well, I'd love to meet them. Um, hi, uh, Dr. Rosaluga, this is uh, Ruchi Capilla. Um, I'm a speech pathologist in the Bay Area. Um, I've worked mostly um, in acute rehab and acute care settings. Um, my question comes to you coming from having participated in my minority student leadership program um, and trying to participate with a number of colleagues and friends who um, identify as ethno-culturally diverse. Um, I was approached at a conference recently and I was asked about how we would given that we have a number of monolingual speakers or um, people who are um, kind of make up the majority of the profession needing to take on this responsibility of cultural humility and uh, cultural sensitivity. How do you feel that in your role, if you were elected, that you can influence how graduate programs start to instill this kind of responsibility and provide um, this ongoing education? regarding this facet of our work? Ruchi, that's a great question. You know, I, I've been doing this work for a long time. I teach the course. It's a core course. So the first thing is, I fought for that core course to be in, uh, incorporated in the curriculum. So it's not an elective and it's not infused. Um, I have come after maybe so many years in, in the academy and, you know, working in the community that you lead by example. You have to lead by example and you have to interject, um, you know, what your values are. Um, you know, I always remember what my mom says, you know, you have to teach people how to treat you. And I, I really believe that there are certain things that you can teach, okay? So you can teach about competency, you can teach what it would be like to be responsive but you know it's sometimes it's an attitude it's an attitude and attitudes are extremely very difficult to change so i think that um a role that would that would really be important in asha is to to really infuse that in every responsibility of of that office so that um if they talk about something and my response would be, so what are the competencies? Does that person understand that they have to do this? You know, you've got to interject and you have to do it in such a way that it's palatable. You know, you get more with honey than you do with vinegar. So you got to really have this um, way of incorporating it and, and, and being that person. Um, you can teach it but I think that the way that you get someone to really understand is either to model it, um, and I'm a, I, you know, maybe it's a New Yorker thing. I'm very into courageous conversations. You know, if I have to um, explain something, uh, what I try to do is explain it in such a way that it's acceptable. The other piece is to listen. You know, sometimes people 
that that really can't incorporate that it's because they don't have that lens and we we have to understand that we have to understand that they might not have that lens and so it would be the role uh, i think um to have some dialogue and then maybe to incorporate that and say, you know, um, I'd really appreciate if you would work on this case with me. I like your perspective. Let me introduce you to what it would mean to, to be uh, confident. And what's the difference between cultural sensitivity? What's the difference between cultural responsiveness? What's the difference between cultural humility? And the other piece that I think is sometimes missing is for you to be able to do that, you have to have it as a speech language pathologist. And I don't know all the time if we spend as much time as we should um, incorporating that into our curriculum when you're doing clinical work or when you're out there doing your internship um, and you working in an acute care, you have uh, a big responsibility because you work with a lot of different people from a lot of different disciplines. So I think um, sharing about speech language pathology, maybe some of the challenges, and then sharing some of the some of those challenges in which you incorporate a little bit about culture and what might be some of the things that people might think about and reflect on. So you could I'm very passionate about it. So thank you so much for your response. I appreciate mm -hmm. it. Okay, Dr. Rosa Lugo, well, that's all the time that we have, and we're very grateful for you to um, take the time to speak with us today. Um, and uh, thank you to our followers that joined us today. And you can um, vote for um, Dr. Rosa Lugo with, uh, on ASHA's website. She is running for Vice President of SLP Practices.